You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you to open up God's Word. Please find Romans chapter 2 in your Bibles. I give you greetings from the men's retreat. I was up there Friday and Saturday with the guys. They're probably having their worship time right now as well. Pray for them as they come home today. Today, we are exploring everyone's favorite topic, God's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment. We're going to be in Romans 2, verses 1 through 11, so please stand with me. If you're new to grace, we stand to read God's word. We believe it is completely true and without error. It is perfect and God uses it to change us. So I'm going to start at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things... And yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Please have your way in our hearts today. And may our homes be affected. May your church be affected. And every place you send us, Lord, may you use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. God's righteous judgment. Uh, You can't escape God's justice and his judgment. It's a fact. It's the truth. But you can escape human laws. Uh, Just think about it for a moment. If you break human laws, there are several possibilities of escape. Now, it's possible, let's say you, you break the law, you commit a crime. It's possible that no one finds out what you did. So you kind of you think you're skating on that one. It's possible uh, that a guilty person can escape the jurisdiction where the crime was committed and kind of hide out somewhere. Or maybe, let's say, you get caught and you get arrested, but the legal process breaks down and you go scot-free. Or let's say you commit a crime and you get arrested and you go to jail. Well, a criminal can escape jail. 
But when, it's, when we're talking about God's righteous judgment, this is not possible. All of our sins never escape his notice. Psalm 139, verse 3, the psalmist says to God, you know my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Literally, you are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. You know everything about me. I can't escape you. So God's judgment is real. You can't escape it, and it is fair. In fact, the words judgment and justice are similar. Justice is being righteous or fair. Judgment is the activity of giving a decision based on that justice. So we are in Romans chapter 2. We've gone all the way through Romans chapter 1. And, and there's been this gospel theme that was set as a foundation. And building on that grand gospel theme of God's righteousness and wrath being revealed, uh, we are moving on now into chapter 2 where Paul is focusing on moral people who judge others. The last part of chapter 1, he was focusing on you know, irreligious pagans that didn't care about any right or wrong, and now he is zeroing in on what I'll call the unrepentant moralist. In fact, he's having a hypothetical conversation. You know, you are without excuse, oh man. And he's asking this person questions even. And he's anticipating an objection. Maybe from a ph philosopher like Seneca who would have totally agreed with his indictment of the Gentiles, uh, but self-righteously thought that he was just fine. So what you've got, and I want to, uh, to set this because we're going to be here for a while, uh, for, for many months in, in this in this uh, section in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That is, that's an entire section in Romans. And what Paul is doing in this section is, is giving overwhelming evidence of man's sinfulness. It's like you hear over and over again how sinful mankind is and, and the heart that wants to follow God, you know what that heart cries out? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul is making the point that man is sinful and there's overwhelming evidence for it and we desperately need the righteousness that only God provides. So Paul has introed God's righteousness in chapter 1, verse 17. How God powerfully saves those who believe and stake their lives on the gospel. And how his righteousness is revealed, literally being experienced right now by those who believe, who live the obedience of faith. And we saw that that phrase, the obedience of faith, is bookended in Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 5, and then at the very end of chapter 16. It's going to be explained in detail, this righteousness of God, um, starting in chapter 3 verse 21 all the way through chapter 5. It's a huge theme in the book of Romans. But in chapter 1, we saw that creation proves there is a God, and, and we owe everything to that God. And when we do not love God, our lives become distorted. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and God gives us over to distorted desires in other areas of life. That we choose to devote our desires and energies to our own ideas we suppress the truth by misdirected worship, and then we get distorted desires as a result, and it reveals God's just anger against distorted worship. 
The invisible God, that's what he's called in Romans 1. The invisible God made enough of his goodness visible through creation that we should honor him. It's very clear. We suppress the truth. We choose to worship people or animals or objects instead of God. And so we are all guilty. And God is 100% right to be angry. There is no noble savage that exists. All are guilty and under God's just anger and fury. And what Paul is doing is really getting down to the nitty-gritty, granular essence of human sinfulness. Why evil exists in human hearts. Why people perpetuate lives of sin. And why people congratulate others who do so. In fact, we ended last week in chapter 1, verse 32, where there are people who give hearty approval to those who live an evil life. And they are doubly guilty. So this is what we've been seeing. There's been this exchange. It's a bad deal, but it's, there's been exchange between order and disorder. We are to worship our creator and steward his creation, but instead we deny God and worship creation. We saw that idolatry leads to immorality. The resulting moral chaos proves that God is angry with everyone except believers. So this is what's been going on so far in Romans and God, God has been given evidence against you know, irreligious, immoral pagans all the way up to the end of chapter 1, basically the Gentiles. But now it shifts. Now um, the, the, the focus is on apparently moral people, religious, apparently moral people who think they're right with God. And, and then, again, this, this section will conclude to show all people deserve God's judgment. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 uh, gives that to us very clearly, very painfully. If you want to enjoy gospel goodness, you've got to go through the pain of understanding human sinfulness. And so, in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul is presenting his case against the religious moralist. He's answering unrepentant moralists who think they're just good enough or at least better than everybody else, uh, the proud, the idolatrous, the immoral judger. And so the point of this passage is this. God rightly judges anyone who will not repent. God is right to judge anyone who will not repent. And here you have the hypothetical unrepentant moralist, which we know um, there are millions that exist, this proud, idolatrous, uh, actually immoral judger, the person who says, so what if I'm idolatrous and immoral? I can do what I want. I'm my own boss. I'm the captain of my own soul. Everyone else is bad. I'm good. And so what we're going to see here is what happens to hard-hearted, proud people. After idolatry leads to immorality, how does God reward those who reject his love? What happens to unrepentant idolaters? We're going to see, here's what God doesn't like, here's what he doesn't approve of, here's why it's bad, and, and praise God, here's the escape hatch, here's the escape hatch, here's the way of escape, and, and then here's what happens if you do not repent, that, that everyone who refuses to believe is in the same boat, the irreligious and the moralists alike, and it's like there's a rocket launcher that God has trained right on every single person who won't repent. 
So this is where we're at today. Paul is answering the unrepentant moralist, and there's three truths we see in this passage. Three truths relating to God's righteous judgment we need to pay attention to. The first is in the first three verses, man's unrighteous judgment. In the context of God's righteous judgment, he lays out how man is unrighteously judging. And then you see God's way of escape in verses 4 and 5, and then we'll see God's righteous judgment in verses 6 through 11. But first, let's focus on man's unrighteous judgment, verses 1 through 3. Now, the idea is there is 0% excuse for judging others for their sin. That you condemn yourself when you do it because you do the same kind of things, and God's judgment can't be escaped. So you have no excuse, and you who judge, we who judge, are just as guilty. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 2, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So we have no excuse when we judge others because in that judgment we condemn ourselves. Look at verse 1. It starts, therefore. It's continuing on from chapter 1, verse 32, where he's condemned those who approve of evil acts. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's already anticipating objections, basically. And, and he says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And isn't it true that you often hate in other people what you see in yourself? That a proud person hates proud people. So you, therefore, and he knows religious people in the church do not approve. They pass judgment. They disapprove of the wicked and the point that's being made here is that religious people are not in the right with God because they disapprove of evil. You can't sit there today and say, you know, I disapprove of all these sins. I'm right with God. That doesn't make you right with God. That makes you a judger. Now, you're right to disapprove of sin, but you're horribly mistaken to think that your disapproval of evil makes you not guilty. And here were the unbelieving Jews convincing themselves that they were not really sinners like the Gentiles. We can do the same kind of things. We could try to hide our guilt before God by comparing ourselves to others rather than by measuring ourselves by God's standard. Think about it. When, when you compare yourself like this to other people, it doesn't excuse you of your sins. And so that's why it says, basically he's saying this is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. This is what verse 1 tells us. You who judge, it's, it's inexcusable. Those who think they're ex exempt from God's judgment because they have not indulged in certain sins described, let's say, in chapter 1, are tragically wrong. This is the person that basically points at people and says, I'm not as bad as you. See, what we see here is that God's judgment is based on truth, that his judgment is right and fair and true and in line with his righteousness. And it is about what you do, not what you approve or disapprove. It's about what you do. By the way, if I do something and at the same time pass judgment on you for the same kind of thing, I'm de de uh, agreeing, literally, that God should judge me. I'm being self-condemned there. It's like you're scoring a goal against yourself in soccer or a basket against yourself in basketball. Do the same things. Those who, those who judge do the same things, and that doesn't mean that every single person does all the things that are listed in the Bible that are, that are called sin, because all the things listed in the Bible that are called sin isn't exhaustive. I mean, we're, we're, our, our hearts are, 
our idol factories. We're coming up with new sins all the time, permutations all the time. Hardly any Jews practice homosexuality, which was condemned in chapter 1. But Paul, I think, is referring to the general list in verses 29 through 31 that isn't exhaustive. It's just a general list. You can't go down that list and say, well, I haven't done any of those things. Because now you're proud. So, where we're at here is that anyone who condemns others for their sin um, and excuse their own sins are, is committing two deadly errors. Two deadly errors. Number one, you're ignoring God's moral standard. You're setting up your own and saying, you know, I am the final arbiter in what is right and wrong. And number two, you're denying the depth of your own sinfulness. And you don't want to commit those two deadly errors. Look at verse two. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. It's according to truth. Everything God does is right. On into chapter 9, verse 14, a question arises. Is there any injustice on God's part? And the answer, by no means. God is 100% just. He's fair. Well, the psalmist could say in Psalm 9:4, you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with uprightness. But it says that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. There's all, all sorts of theories abound uh, why people do bad things, right? And we don't, don't we like to call out the most heinous crimes and then, you know, be okay with the, the sin in our own life? Now, just think about what happened in Vegas. Horrible, horrible massacre. And I read an article about it, and it was called this, Thoughts on Vegas and Why Men Keep Doing This. Now, the author was a man who wrote it. He was humble, he was kind, he was compassionate, and very misguided. He gave an alternative narrative of why evil breaks out, and here's what he said. Here's why men keep doing this. Because they're lonely, and they're not playing enough. I guess the... You know, there's a lot of grown men that are acting like boys playing video games all day long, right? Uh, sorry, but it's true. Lonely, not playing enough, and they're ashamed. And the comments were even worse. You, know, you like to read the comments? I like to read the comments. Everybody had an opinion. Nobody had an answer. It's striking, isn't it? Everybody seems to have an opinion of why horrible evil is perpetuated. Nobody wants to, to acknowledge resident evil in human hearts. Nobody wants to acknowledge indwelling sin, the resulting social distortion. And then what do we do? We sit back, you know, self-righteously, go, oh, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to now, you know, cherry-pick certain sins and call them really bad, and then, and then I'm going to call other sins really good. In fact, I'm going to say they're not even sin. And here's what happens. The world tells people, you know, you are bad because you do bad things. And, of course, the world's going to say what's bad and what's right, what's good, right? The world says, you're bad because you do bad things. You're a sinner because you sin. That's not the way it goes. The Bible says, you are bad, therefore you do bad things. And you are a sinner, therefore you sin. It's what you do. This is what Paul's saying. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's like everyone is equally guilty before a holy God. 
Anyone who judges another for their sin is actually judging themselves. When I judge you, I indict myself because I'm guilty of sin too. If I judge you and don't repent of my sin, I show I don't believe the gospel. So this is man's unrighteous judgment. We are so prone, aren't we, to justify our own sin while holding people to a higher standard than we want to be held to ourselves. And so the question that Paul is asking is, do you really think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Can you run that fast? Do you think God doesn't see you? Is God going to make an exception just for you? Are you the only one in the world holding some get-out-of-jail-free card? This would be exactly what the, the, the moralist Jew would have been thinking. Hey, I'm a member of God's covenant people. can't touch me now there's a lot of people in bible believing churches that think the same way well hey i get a pass because i say i'm a christian i got baptized i try to give a live a good life I, i read my bible and stuff paul says no to that and goes on to prove it the idea here is you know god really is aware of sin you check that in your decision making We'll always be faced with a choice between God and sin, God's will and our desires, condemning others for their sin while trying to justify ours. And let's just say, let's pause for a moment and say, what if you are that person? You're sitting here today, or you're hearing this sermon, and you say, I, I'm the moralistic judger. I'm judging everybody. Your family is like, literally, I can't see the, the movement of the arms, but they're like elbowing you in the seat. How can you not be judgmental? Let me give you a couple ideas. Five ideas, real quick. You might want to write these down if you're a judger. We're all judgers, but some people are like way better at it, it seems like. I don't know. Um, a lot of practice. Uh, number one, regularly repent of your sins. Okay, we're going to get to that a little further on here, what, what that means. Regularly repent of your sins. Number two, persistently pray for other people. Pray for people. All those people you don't like, pray for them. Anytime you think wrong thoughts about someone, pray for them. Your heart, if, if you're not, you're not reconciled with God or others. Number three, bless people. Make it your practice to bless rather than curse them, not just with your words, but with your thoughts. Number four, be transformed. Regularly repent, persistently pray, bless people, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind by God's spirit through his word. Always remember, what did Jesus do for me at the cross? How does the gospel transform what I'm going through and what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling? The gospel changes lives, right? Number five, don't overreact. Don't overreact. Don't get your exercise jumping to conclusions about everyone. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to retaliate. God is the judge. God is the jury. He is going to make all things right. Isn't it true that things work better when we're not judging people but loving them? Isn't it just true? Like you're at peace when you're not judging people. When you're judging people, you're always stirred up about something. Now, I'm not talking about condoning people's sin or celebrating people's sin. I'm talking about not condemning them, but loving them. It's, I, it's, I think it's a similar concept in our relationship with God. When we accept what God brings in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, people, blessings, hardships, and we don't blame God, then, then we experience the peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ.
irreligious people, moral people, everyone guilty before God. It's so easy to judge other people and not want to repent of our own, of our sins. Isn't it just so frustratingly weird about us, how we are? We don't want to confess our sins. Uh, we don't want to repent of our own, but we want to judge other people for theirs. Um, Scotty Smith wrote this. I think he tweeted it the other day, and I liked it, and so I, I grabbed it. Here's what he said. What a great day for seeing more of Jesus' beauty, worrying less about what people think about us, and forsaking all attempts to fix anybody. I liked that. A great day for seeing more of the beauty of Jesus, worrying less about what people think about you, and not trying to fix people. So this is what we see the first point. There's no excuse, 0% excuse, for judging others for their sin. We have no excuse. We judge others because we condemn ourselves. And then we move on to verses 4 and 5, God's way of escape. God is so good. He gives us a way of escape. He lovingly gives us time to repent. It's amazing love. How can it be? God patiently and lovingly gives us time to repent. Look at verse 4. Now again, this is in the negative because he's, he's, he's talking to the, the, the religious moralist judger, right? So he says, do you presume? It's an interesting word. It means to despise. It literally means to think down on, to devalue someone or something, to treat with contempt. Do you despise the goodness of God or the, the grace of God? Or you, do you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? He's asking his question. And, and I want you to look at the word patience. It means long-suffering. It's the old school word, but it, it means to hold something back. It, it's like a truce between enemies who are at war with each other. And it indicates time. And it indicates that God waits and that he waits for long periods of time. 2 Peter 2.9 is a verse that gets misused sometimes, but it says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. The question you have to ask in this verse is, who is you? Um, and, and if you look in First and Second Peter, it's written to Christians, to the elect. And he's saying, God is patient toward you. He's writing to people who are professing faith in Christ. And he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That everyone whose God has marked out to come to faith would actually do that and they would repent of their sins. But Paul here in Romans is saying, are you really despising God's goodness so much and you don't know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that word kindness is very interesting. It means goodness. It's God's loving kindness. Like he's saying, do you have such a low view of God's goodness that you think it gives you a license to sin? Because God hasn't zapped you already? You think you must be okay? You know, God doesn't destroy you the first moment you sin. He mercifully holds back his judgment to show his saving character so that people would come to him and be saved, that they would realize, God, you are holy and I am sinful and Christ is the Savior and I'm going to come to you in faith and repentance. This act of turning to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Repentance, what is it? What's repentance? We talk about repentance a lot in Christian circles, right? What's repentance? 
Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance is the discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. J.I. Packer says repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. John Piper said repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all your praise and all your obedience. What repentance is is an inner change in your heart that leads you to God-centered, Christ-exalting behavior. Repentance is not your behavior. Repentance is your change of heart that God grants. What was Jesus' first command? Who knows? Let's do a test. What was Jesus' first command as he started to preach? What was it? Repent! Repent. It was a call for radical inward change toward God and man. Uh, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Greek word for repent, metanoeo, is is coming in two parts, meta and noeo. Meta is a prefix. It means movement or change. Noeo refers to your mind. It's your thoughts. It's your motives. It's your perceptions, your dispositions. So here's what it means. When you repent, you change your mind. Your mind is changed. And it changes the reason you want to do something. Repentance is what happens inside of you that leads to your new behaviors. It's not outward. But it's an inward change that bears the fruit of doing right. And Jesus actually demands that if you follow him, that this is true in your heart. That you actually have an inward change in your heart. In fact, That's why I use the term professing believers a lot. Because just because we say something doesn't make it true. Because we're not God. Only God knows who belongs to him. And every Christian needs to take that self-examination. In Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, Jesus said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And Jesus was talking about himself. And we know this, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's loving kindness toward us leads us to turn from our sin. Titus puts it this way, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and live soberly and righteously as we await Christ's return. Paul David Tripp said this, God didn't wait for us to wake up and repent because it wouldn't have ever happened. No, he comes and wakes us up by his convicting grace. And what happens is we have a change of mind which creates uh, us a, a desire to act differently and you see new behaviors in a person's life. Luke chapter three describes that relationship between uh, the inner repentance that happens and the new behavior that happens. Here's the command, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Then there's some examples of the fruits. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. See, God doesn't punish you immediately. He gives you time to repent. 
Some of you are thinking, hey, it's a-okay because God doesn't immediately punish me for when I, when I sin. I'm experiencing no adverse side effects. I think I'm good with God while not repenting of my sins. And every day you're experiencing God's kindness and forbearance and patience and you think you can go on in hypocrisy, condemning evildoers who would, while you're doing evil yourself. That's living in cheap grace. It's not grace. Your faith is not the obedience of faith. Your faith is counterfeit and you're presuming on the grace of God. That's what it says in verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That hardness of heart, we, by the way, that word uh, hardness of heart, we get our English word uh, sclerosis from it, you know, like arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. Uh, from this Greek word, that's where we get it, but it, what, what Paul's talking about is a spiritual hardening. An impenitent heart, a refusal to repent and accept God's forgiveness through Christ. He says you're treasuring up, you're storing up wrath for yourself because you're rejecting his offer of forgiveness and you're clinging to sin. And you're earning more of God's wrath and a severer judgment. And there is a day of wrath and a day of judgment and that refers to final judgment at the great white throne. God's righteous judgment, sovereignly doing as he pleases. And the truth that we see here is that unless and until we repent, we have no escape. Now, Paul is not speaking of someone who sins sometimes and confesses their sins. He's talking about someone who continually does not repent of their sins. Wrath does not come on those who sin, but on those who sin and are stubborn and refuse to repent. So I don't want you to misunderstand this because those with tender hearts always think this means that their security in Christ is only as good as their last repentance. People will say, oh no, I'm in danger of hell until I repent. What if I die with an unconfessed sin? That's contrary to the gospel of grace explained so wonderfully in, in Romans and we'll see it in chapter three and five and most notably at the end of chapter eight. Paul is not condemning shaky discipleship. He is condemning persistent hypocrisy, fake disciples thinking they need no repentance. Even people who say, my need for repentance ended when I came to faith in Christ. Then you don't have faith in Christ because you don't understand the gospel. Paul is not trying to point out the life that sometimes falls into sin and therefore needs repentance all the time. It's the hard-hearted person that refuses to repent. Paul is not speaking of the humble heart that lacks assurance of salvation but to the hard-hearted one that has a false assurance of salvation. R.C. Sproul said this, one of the great and ghastly errors, and not just errors, but heresies, that permeates the evangelical world today is the doctrine of the carnal Christian. If you're 100% flesh, 100% carnal, you're 100% unconverted. But, but you know what's awesome about this? Paul is speaking, and those with tender hearts will see it, of God's amazing mercy and kindness, his loving kindness, his goodness that leads us to repentance, that literally gifts us with repentance. How beautiful that God in his goodness loves us so much, he leads us to turn from our sins to Christ. Amen. Over and over and over again. This is not a one-time act. You don't get saved over and over and over again. You get saved, but then God consistently brings you back with a heart of repentance where you yield your entire life to him. 
those who heard these words first uh, as they were being read to a, a gathered church would have been blown away uh, to hear of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. I think this is where this passage just gets to the heart that we must be deeply and urgently inspired to practice repentance every day. That's, that's really what this passage is pointing to for believers, that this is repentance as a believer. I've got lots of stories I could tell you about how God has graciously granted me repentance as a believer, but I'll just tell you one. Uh, years ago, I was coaching out on a soccer field, coaching my kids, and a friend of mine, Jeff, uh, at the time, I, I don't believe he was professing faith in Christ. He, he does now, but I don't think it was because of me. Um, Jeff was the, the referee on the soccer field, and I was the coach um, fighting for, you know, the championship of eight-year-old soccer, you know, and how important that gets on Saturday afternoons in the fall. And, and I, I, um, I didn't like what he was doing, and I, I accused him of giving some home cooking to the other team and uh, favoring them and stuff. And uh, obviously, I was being a total jerk to him on the field, just a total jerk. And... Um, Unbeknownst to me, he calls some of my friends that he was neighbors with, I didn't realize, that there were believers that went to our church, and he goes, you know that pastor guy at your church? He was a real jerk with me on the soccer field today. Well, I go home, actually, I'm on the way home, and I'm thinking, man, I shouldn't have done that today. I was was a jerk to him, and I got on the phone, found his number, called him up, and said, hey, Jeff, I am really sorry I was a total jerk to you today on the the soccer field. I'm a Christian. He goes, yeah, I know you're a pastor. Mm -hmm." You know, (laughs) I talked to my friends. They're, They're like, he doesn't usually act like that, you know. I just told him, I'm really sorry. He and I became better friends after that. We just talked again last week. And uh, all I can tell you is God is going to, if you're a real believer, God is going to bring you to repentance again and again and again and again. Here's what I'm afraid of, though. What if we become a church full of self-righteous, pharisaical Christians? And then we would continually be confronted with conflicts and rivalries We'd always be comparing ourselves and our perceived goodness and looking down on people we think are worse. See, daily repentance by every professing believer is a prerequisite for a unified church. And a peaceful heart, by the way. If you're a a believer, you want a peaceful heart, do that. I've been praying that I would have a deep conviction in my heart and that you would as well, um, that we would, would really want to live the obedience of faith and, and you know what else? It actually, it actually, um, it actually affects our mission as a church. We say, well, oh, we got all these missionaries, we got this, we got that, and all these outreaches and what have you. It, oh, it totally affects it because today you're leaving. You're not staying here all day long. You can come to third hour if you want, but you're gonna go. And you're gonna go tomorrow. You're gonna go to your neighborhood. You're gonna go to your office. You're gonna go to your school. You're gonna go all the places you go. And you're gonna hopefully be, as a believer, living on mission. But we only live effectively on mission when our hearts are changed by the grace of God and we have hearts of compassion and humility and love to reach out to unforgiven sinners instead of pointing our fingers. And we're gonna conclude there. We're gonna look at the rest of these verses next week, okay? But I just wanna say this. Man's unrighteous judgment is, is, is very, very clear. There's no excuse for us judging others for their sin. Uh, we have no excuse because we then condemn ourselves. But God has given us a way of escape. He's given us a way of escape. He lovingly gives us time to repent. It's amazing love. He patiently and lovingly gives us time to repent. 
And if you're a believer, you have absolute coverage by Christ's blood. You know, it's absolute coverage by Christ's blood for the repentant. And so we're, we better repent often. We were either going to be um, self-righteously judging or humbly repenting. I pray that we'll be practicing the latter a lot. Amen? Lord, thank you that you, in your kindness and your love and your, your grace, lead us to repentance. May we stand unashamed, uncondemned, unconformed to the world, all in your grace and by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.